Hello and welcome to Tea Time Theology. I'm Ivy Swinsky, and today's guest is the Reverend Della Wagger Wells, and we will be talking about the Anglican Communion. How exciting! Uh, thank you, Della, for being with us today. I'm very happy to be invited. Thank Absolutely. you for inviting me. Um, so, would you like to start with the Bible quote that you brought? I'd be glad to do that. I brought um, several verses from Acts 2, which is the event of Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. This is where it gets interesting. <laughs> now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, in our own languages we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. Now that got cleared up in the immediate verses <laughs> after that, because as Peter said, it was nine in the morning, they hadn't been drinking. Yeah. I have to be honest, this has been the episode I've been most nervous about because I don't really know a lot about the Anglican Communion. And that's one of my favorite passages. I love the idea of these like flaming tongues coming down. So I'm really excited that that is the one that you brought. Um, mine's a little different. Uh, so thinking about this, something of like a gut reaction for me was this idea of a breakup song for the Anglican mm. Communion. Um, and I decided just to go with my gut and we can see where that leads us. Um, so for my secular quote, I did the song Break Even by the script. The part of it is, what am I supposed to do when the best part of me mm. was always you? And what am I supposed to say when I'm all choked up and you're okay? And when a heart breaks, no, it don't break even. Mm. And, um, and that might be because um, in recent news, the Anglican communion hasn't sort of seemed very stable. I was talking to someone the other day of it being like two divorced parents trying to co-parent as best as they can. Um, and I don't know how accurate that is, and I love to be wrong about that, um, or what your thoughts are. Well, I chose what I did from Acts because I think 
Language is a great way to think about context and a great way, great way to measure context because I think what was going on in that one section I read is um, the sudden location of many different perspectives, many different contexts, many different nationalities, backgrounds, geographic locations, um, cultural locations, identities, races, ethnicities, all of that contained in one small space of the old city of Jerusalem. So this would have been in what, you know, early first century common era, first, you know, right after Jesus died um, and was resurrected. So this would have presented all of those different contexts in one place. A lot of what is going on right now are the opportunities created by multiple contexts in the Anglican Communion. And I am more optimistic in <laughs> saying it is a breakup song, although I hear you in that completely. Um, it's a little bit like what you represent, though, in that it is a family. Mm. And it is like co-parenting and it is about different contexts and different perspectives and like a family that's the cool thing about the Anglican community <laughs> like a family while different groups can get very disappointed for example in I'll say tech the Episcopal Church is which is what mm -hmm. our province is called mm -hmm. um, those in the Anglican Communion refer to us as tech. When we hear there are provinces, mm -hmm. uh, such as Nigeria, who are not happy with us and wish we were more theologically or culturally conservative than we are. First of all, this is another whole subject, those are proxy issues for other issues. Mm -hmm. Second, they can't kick us out of the family. <laughs> it's true. They can decide they're not coming to Thanksgiving dinner, but they can't exclude us from coming. They can say that they won't be there and they won't they themselves don't want to participate, but they can't say we may not. And so it is a little bit like your great example of a breakup song in that it is about family, but it's also about family. I don't think we can be kicked out. No. <laughs> That's very reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> so let's go back to basics. Yeah. What is the Anglican Communion? Woohoo, my favorite subject. <laughs> um, the Anglican Communion is a relational association of the English Catholic Church and all of its separate provinces. Um, Beginning with the Church of England, when the Church of England formed in and around 1549, you know, all of the succession of the yeah. laws, the uh, act of separation, etc. The English, the Church of England was on its own for a long time. And actually, the American Episcopal Church was what? The second mission, second mm -hmm. separate church. The Church of Scotland, I think, and the non-juring bishops would have been the first. But when we separated and had Samuel Seabury consecrated by the Scottish non-juring bishops, um, when we began the Episcopal Church, Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States, um, we were really the first province that created the Anglican Communion. 
now we have 40 or 41, I believe it's 40 provinces all over the world. And when we ask the question, what is the average Anglican, it evokes a really curious response for a lot of people in the Episcopal Church. Would you like to know? Yes, I would love to. All right. The av <laughs> average Anglican is a mother under 25 living on the African continent. So it changes our perspective a little bit when we think in the United States about the Episcopal Church, TAC, being a diminishing denomination or being um, an older denomination mm -hmm. or a predominantly white denomination. Mm -hmm. The average Anglican is a mother under 25, and she lives on the African continent. That is wonderful and super exciting but not even close to what i thought you were going to say um wow that's crazy um so it's the domestic foreign mission is what the american idea of the episcopal churches is that correct do you mean are you speaking of the domestic and foreign mission society yeah, that's awesome. what it is yes. isn't that great <laughs> that the name of our church officially is something about missionaries. We're all missionaries just by virtue of being members, and I think that's cool. The Domestic and Foreign Mission Society does business as the Protestant Episcopal Church of the United States, which is called TAC, the Episcopal Church, the Episcopal Church. Um, and that is one province mm -hmm. out of the 40. And as you know, a province is made up of dioceses. A diocese is made up of parishes. A parish forms, elects its leaders, a vestry, calls a rector, then the clergy and the elected leaders in the parishes together call a bishop, and the bishops together with the House of Deputies elect a presiding bishop every Mm, what eight years or so and ours is Michael Curry he is our primate and there are 39 or so other primates mm -hmm. of the other provinces in the Anglican Communion and then the titular head although not our Pope <laughs> is the Archbishop of Canterbury Justin mm. Welby and so he has his predecessor Rowan Williams said memorably a couple of times he said at times the frustration of some of the bishops who get frustrated and the primates who get frustrated with the Episcopal Church is that we are so democratic unlike <laughs> the Catholic Roman Catholic Church yeah. where it's a it's a monarchy yeah. top down right um, where the Pope essentially through his delegates and deputies ordains every priest mm. because all of the mechanism of the cardinals and the college of cardinals all of that comes down from the pope and over the bishops and over the diocese over the parishes whereas ours is built up as i described beginning with the people who call a rector and form a congregation mm. who together with other congregations parishes call a bishop form a diocese form mm. a province and on up mm. so we're very grassroots and often um, the 
bishops in other provinces that really are more on the Roman Catholic model mm -hmm. get frustrated and say to our mm -hmm. Archbishop of Canterbury, can't you issue an edict that will change their behavior immediately and get them under control? <laughs> and Archbishop, when Archbishop Rowan was in office, he used to say, I don't have any more authority than a traffic cop or a telephone operator, old-fashioned telephone operator. You remember the kind with the switchboard? Yeah. I connect parties who can talk to each other, or I'm a traffic cop who advises as to safety at intersections and says, mm -hmm. you know, green light for you guys, come on ahead, mm -hmm. uh, no right turn here, that kind of thing. But that's the level of directive authority. It's like our kind of a loose association of relationships, we all are held together through relationship, not through papal infallibility, papal edict, anything like that. So it's all about um, what you were talking about in terms of, of holding together and how the best of you, what was your line? Um, what am I supposed to do when the best, best part of me was always you? Right, very closely associated very closely together. And it's not about who we are individually, but who we are together and how we become each other and how we become ourselves through our conversation and relationship. Wow. Um, so what authority does the Archbishop of Canterbury have then? The authority to invite bishops to Lambeth Conference, for example, mm -hmm. Um, July 22nd through August 2nd. Yes, that's this year. 2020, it is this it? year. Yes. yes. It is this year. It's typically every 10 years, but we've had an extra two just for adjustments and thinking <laughs> and more conversation. Yeah, always conversation. Why is it important that we are part of the Anglican communion and aren't just like our own little silo here? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and it's a great question to apply in our own context because we're built not of silos, but we are different clusters, right? Mm -hmm. So um, why is it important, and maybe we could ask that question too, why is it important that we're part of the Diocese of Rhode Island and that the Diocese of Rhode Island is part of Province 1 of the Episcopal Church? and that province one of the Episcopal Church is part of tech. Because all of that gives us channels for communication, channels for relationship, channels for working together to experience together the joys and the concerns, not just on a parish level in a very isolated way, but across all languages, all nations, I mean, even when you think about the quotation I brought from Acts, yeah. um, that was the nations of every kingdom of the world mm -hmm. that were present in the city of Jerusalem, which is a relatively constricted space inside the old city. <laughs> I've yeah. walked it frequently. Yeah. And it is enclosed by walls, and so it's a defined area, and that represented all of those different perspectives. Archbishop Desmond Tutu in the province of Southern Africa, mm -hmm. he was also the Bishop of Cape Town when he was active, he often said, 
we're Anglicans because we meet. There was a lot about our meetings, our associations, and our councils that brings out who we are in relationship and both accentuates and diminishes our different contacts. It's very easy when we meet others, the other, any other, um, to come with the presumption and the, not even the presumption, just the innate understanding that our own experience is normative, mm -hmm. our own experience is the way everyone's experience is, because we all stand and walk in our own shoes mm -hmm. and we all look out of our own glasses. We're just gonna see what we see in those ways. And when we come to another context and another experience, it is the most eye-opening thing in the world to realize all of a sudden that other people see the same thing differently. Mm. And particularly if you ever have the opportunity to interact with Christians, Anglicans in other contexts, if you can manage to meet difference with curiosity instead of suspicion, you might find all of a sudden you're on the other side of the road where everything, not just the other side of the road, other side of the world, where everything and not just you know, the weather, the dirt color, the geography, maybe it's mountainous, maybe it's close to the sea, maybe it's flat, maybe it's desert, the money's different, the language is different, the air just feels different. But with all of that, you don't see anymore whether somebody's got the style of shoes that you're familiar with or the accent you know from home. And all of that noise just can drop away and you suddenly start seeing what you have in common mm. instead of what's different. Yeah. Um, this may be a stupid question, um, but does everyone in the Anglican Communion use the Book of Common Prayer? Is that like a What link? an awesome question. <laughs> That's a great question. We all come from Thomas Cranmer's 1549 Book of Common Prayer. Yes. Um, and obviously we have, in each of the provinces, we have different governance structures, but it is a lay and cler clerical, lay and clergy governance structure that work together in committees and come up with our version of the Book of Common Prayer in our language. Um, for example, there's a, there's a Pan-Africa version that typically is translated into Chichua, Swahili, whatever, but it's, I believe, from the 1552 English Book of Common Prayer mm -hmm. and not from, for example, our 1979 book. But yes, everybody has a Book of Common Prayer and the f form and the shape of our service is almost identical. I can remember being at a wonderful service um, quite a while back. This would have been 2009 in Malawi near Blantyre. And it was a wonderful service where people came. You could see them coming over the horizon with baskets on their heads and instruments and generators to run the 
microphones and the <laughs> amplifiers and all of that. It was a it was like a flash mob that gathered in a clearing, had an amazing service, and then just as quickly it was gone. But I remember standing next to the junior warden of the cathedral in Blantyre, mm. and she was proud to be a lector. She mm -hmm. got up to read the epistle. And in the meantime, she had been pointing at her prayer book next to me. I didn't read Chichua. Yes. But she was saying things like, Anakandai, love, mtanda, cross. And so, and she was very serious about this. She just intended that I should be able to carry on. And so when she got up to read, she gave me her prayer book and, and just looked at me kind of fiercely that I was to continue <laughs> <laughs> while she left. But it was... It was clear what we were doing. I could tell at every time, even though it was in a language I didn't understand, that that was exactly, it was our shape of our service. Do you think there is something almost more powerful in experiencing a service where you don't speak the language? Because it's sort of then just on the gut reaction mm. and it's more about the experience than the words that you're saying yeah. you're pulling out my closet charismatic whoops <laughs> I said that out loud there are a couple of answers to that that I'd have one of them would be it's really important to the Anglican faith that scripture be available in our own tongue if you think about some of the laws that were enacted at the time of Thomas Cranmer and Henry VIII and Cromwell and all of that, that they were getting Bibles into the churches in English, and that was a huge deal. Every church had to have a Bible. And similarly, the worship was going to be not in Latin, but in English. Mm -hmm. So I have to kind of wear that Anglican theology because yeah. I really... I really do adhere to that, mm -hmm. and I. But I also feel the charismatic pull. Yeah. So yes, I do see that, and particularly the music, and the dancing in mm -hmm. East Africa is very affecting. Yeah, and both answers can be true. Yeah, right? you can, and that's the great thing about the Anglican Church is yeah. that you can say yes and no. Yes, admit every possibility. Yes. <laughs> Tell me. Yeah. Um, so one of the reasons we had you for this topic is that you are part of the Compass Rose Society, correct? Yes, that is correct. What is that? What does it mean? Because that's connected to the Anglican community. Yes, right. it is. Awesome. And if you'll indulge just a brief little diversion. Of course. Um, I'm like a bad Labrador. I chase the ball if you just throw <laughs> it. But um, the Compass Rose Society is a mission society that was formed in 1994. It was at the time that George Carey, Lord Carey, was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he traveled to the Sudan. And it was another one of those kind of flash mob Eucharists that I mm -hmm. described. And the Archbishop's staff asked how many would be present for communion, for Eucharist that night. Here's the Archbishop of Canterbury to enact and embody and celebrate his mission and ministry of relationship in the global communion. And he had come to this war-torn area to be there. And the local bishop, the diocesan bishop, said, well, 
we won't be having Eucharist because we have no bread and we have no wine. Oh. So everybody gets back to Canterbury and Archbishop Carey called the staff in and said, what do we, what do, we do about this? And so the, the Compass Rose Society was formed. It is not a, it's not an aid society. That's okay. left to primates, world relief and development, mm -hmm. the Anglican Alliance, Episcopal relief and development. Mm -hmm. um, it's more a relational society to assist and lift up and support the Archbishop of Canterbury's Ministry of Relationship mm -hmm. in the Anglican Communion. So what was the first thing we did? We got some bread and wine. <laughs> And, and made sure that that would be available where the Archbishop of Canterbury was. The Compass Rose Society has supported communication in the Anglican Communion, helping Anglicans to communicate with one another, to bring news, to shore up their resources for communication, whether that's websites, we've helped with the website, and in connection with the Lambeth Conference, we've worked very hard to make sure that all of the bishops could get there with their spouses because not every bishop can afford to travel to a remote area out of a rural area to get the necessary travel visas and all mm -hmm. of that with the spouse who also has to go to get the same papers, mm -hmm. get back usually for another period to the home diocese and then travel mm -hmm. to Lambeth. So that's a, that's a lot of travel cost and then their stay cost and all of that kind of thing and so the Compass Rose Society has helped that. I like to say that the Compass Rose Society is the fifth instrument of communion. Mm -hmm. The four instruments of communion are the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, the Lambeth Conference, the Primates Conference, Primates Meeting, and the Anglican Consultative Council which are the elected clergy and laity of the 40 provinces who meet together to decide on an associational basis how mm -hmm. the communion will work together. Mm -hmm. And I've always felt that even though we're unofficial, maybe especially because we're unofficial, that it's all about relationship. Mm -hmm. And I even like it better that way, that we are not really the fifth instrument of yes. communion in an in a official way, because it really underscores the relational quality of the whole undertaking in Anglicanism. Um, can I just ask a quick of question? Of course. What is the difference between the Lambeth Conference? Lambeth, Lambeth. Which is named after Lambeth Palace, which is where the Archbishop of Canterbury has his residence oh. in London. That's cool. Yeah. Um, what's the difference between that and the primate conference? Because isn't it the same people pretty cool. much? Cool. Cool. <laughs> Question. Absolutely. Um, the Lambeth conference is technically all bishops, mm -hmm. all active diocesan bishops in the global communion. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, I think they're over 750, 800 bishops and spouses wow. invited. So like our bishop will go to that yes, one? Yes, indeed, oh, cool. okay. indeed. Um, and that's, so that's the Lambeth Conference and that's mm -hmm. typically every 10 years. Okay. And that's been going on since approximately mid 19th century, okay. like 1867, something like that. And then the primates meeting is the archbishop 
in our case, the presiding bishop, Michael Curry. It's the primate of each of the 40 provinces. Oh, and so okay. they get together and they meet on behalf of their provinces. Mm. This is, the Lambeth is different in that it's all the diocesan bishops. So it's a much bigger body. Mm -hmm. It's what, 750, 800 versus 40. So that's kind of like, because we have like general convention. Mm -hmm. it, so that's kind of like the general convention of the Anglican communion. Is that right? Or Interesting. No? Yes. <laughs> You've got it. So. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, yes. The general convention would be more like... Uh, not re well, yeah, maybe it would be like Lambeth Conference because the Standing Committee and the Anglican Consultative Council, I believe, are also present at Lambeth Conference. I know that the Standing Committee is the Executive Committee. I'm not sure if the whole breadth of the ACC goes to Lambeth, but the Standing Committee will be present. So it does look a lot like the super regional, the Lambeth Conference of, or the excuse me, the General Convention of the Global Communion. Interesting point. Cool. Uh, what is the Standing Committee? The Standing Committee is the Executive Committee of the Anglican Consultative Council. And that consists of lay and uh, clergy members, bishop members. Actually, lay and clergy and Episcopal members of who happen to be on the standing committee of the whole broad body of the Anglican Consultative Council. Like, is there one for each of the provinces? There are. Uh, I'm No, not on the standing committee. The standing committee are an elected body that includes members who govern on the ACC and between ACC meetings. Okay. So it's not going to be somebody from every single one of the 40. I don't believe. I could be okay. wrong on that, though. That's cool. But it will be um, members from different provinces. So technically the most Anglican thing you can do is have communications with people and like open discussions? Or am I just missing? No, that's an interesting extrapolation of what I said. I think it's pretty fair. I think that is a feature of Anglicanism, conversation. Um, we often say the Anglican way is the via media, the middle road, the middle way, which we're often careful to say doesn't mean so much compromise as in um, giving up and, and watering down, but rather ongoing dialogue. I think of the via media more about reconciliation than I do about compromise. And I think about reconciliation as taking fully the opportunity to understand others' context. Because when you stand together and stand shoulder to shoulder and look at the thing you're discussing, you find that your perspective changes mm -hmm. when you look at things from the other's point of view. And you each find that there's something you can agree with from the um, the other's point of view. Yeah. You it, become more alike and less different. Yeah, it's how um, sort of the Episcopal tradition is rooted, and probably Anglican, really, um, is rooted in that idea of study 
Mm-hmm. And always sort of mm-hmm. learning and redefining. The three-legged stool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Can you explain what the three-legged stool is for sure. people who may not know what that is? Sure. It's um, scripture, reason, and tradition, isn't it? I, I think no that's idea. right. They used to always talk about that, but there's also an uh, old wisdom about um, fixing a three-legged stool. You know, when you, you even up the legs, yeah. it just gets shorter and shorter and shorter. And so this metaphor is not to be confused with that one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the three legs of reason, scripture, and tradition are honorable good things. We like them all to be on the stool. Why do we still care about the Anglican Communion? And I may have sort of mm-hmm. done that, but how in this global world that we're kind of living in, is the Anglican Communion important? That's a really good question, because I think what you're admitting or inviting in, even if you're not saying that, is secular um, points of view and the fact that commercial or other mechanisms can sometimes substitute for our experiences in religious community. Is that what you're thinking about? Yeah, a little. Definitely yeah. that idea of bringing in the sort of secular aspects, but also just, right. I don't want to say what is the use of, but like kind of that idea, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. It does. I think that we care deeply because first of all, in many, many contexts, let's just take, for example, the Anglican Church of Tanzania. Um, There are areas in Western and Central Tanzania that are resource constrained and have food scarcity, have drought, those, especially those communities that are away from Lake Tanganyika and away from the abundance of the coast on the East Coast, um, they have many, many challenges and really need what the Anglican Church and its infrastru- infrastructure has done. I've heard the elected officials in government praise the Anglican Church in context where there's a you know celebration of the jubilee of of the diocese of western tanganyika for example and a great gathering of government leaders and religious leaders from all over and the elected leaders have acknowledged the challenges that government faces in basic social services and human need and have said If we didn't have the Anglican Church providing social services, um, whether that's education, whether that's health services, whether that is um, care for children who are orphaned, um, care for those who have learning differences and are unable to care for themselves, um, community centers, education, lifting up women and girls, all sorts of areas that really often comes from the infrastructure of the Anglican Church. Then you could reasonably say, well, why does it matter that we're involved in the Anglican Communion here, where we're not as resource constrained, and maybe the commercial markets could do that? We have an ability to be and walk with those who are on the other side of the world in other constructs and to 
be the source of, or not the source of, to learn from them in that context. Every time I think I'm going to go help somebody, I find out the one who really needed the help and learned something was me. Mm -hmm. There's not anything that any of us can do that will equal what we receive in terms of new perspective and learning. Because that's what happens when you stand by someone in another context. So you've gone on a lot of mission trips then? Um, well, I think our new missiology is to think of it less as mission because that makes it sound like we got all the answers. Yes. And like we drop down like some, you know, do-gooding deus ex machina got out of a machine and, and say, <laughs> step aside, we know how to fix that. You know, yeah. we'll show you. And what I've learned in context is walking alongside, accompanying someone in another context. I might have an idea, but mostly I'm learning and we do it together. Mm. And it's pretty amazing. Do you have a... Um not a missing trip. Do I have a... Do you have sort of a trip you've been on that has been so, like, life-altering for you that you were like, oh, this is why I do this. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. One of those transformative. Yes. Not to, like, yes. discredit the other ones. Can you tell <laughs> us a little bit? <laughs> well, um... I'm very moved by my experiences in East Africa. Mm -hmm. I spent the summer of 2016 um, in a village called Kasulu in the western part of the Diocese of Western Tanganyika, um, which is far west Tanzania along the lake, up near the Burundian border, about 30 minutes from the Burundian border. And it was just such an amazing thing to see how they um, have adapted to their resources, what they have, what they are able to work with. Um, the missiology, I started to say this a minute ago, the missiology of tech, the Episcopal Church, has changed quite a bit from our more colonial style of yes. missiology. And we work a lot now in what we call asset-based community development, okay. ABCD, which is the idea of first going to accompany someone and not to presume what they need or what they want, but first walking with the community, seeing what they have, giving thanks to God for what we've been given, and then figuring out what they need and how to get there with what they have. But it's not about importing leadership. It's about lifting up and empowering local leaders and working together to discover what resources they can develop. That's amazing. It's um, community-based. Yes, absolutely community-based. And this is being done by the Episcopal Church in tech, in the, in the United States as well, in, in all sorts of community contexts. But it is a, a much more, just like the Anglican Communion, just like the Episcopal Church, a much more community-based, democratic, grassroots, as opposed to top-down kind of development. Why do they call us tech? 
because it is the acronym for the Episcopal Church. However, <laughs> so simple to go back <laughs> to go back to the idea of the compass rose that you asked about and mm-hmm. what it does. Um, the compass rose and tack and the Church of England are three of the largest, the three largest contributors to the Anglican Communion's budget and Mm -hmm. the budget of the Anglican Communion office. (laughs) And the um, Michaela Souther in in the Anglican Communion office was giving this report to the Compass Rose back in October, and she kept talking about tech, and then she'd talk about the Church of England, and then she'd talk about um, the Compass Rose Society and all of that. And I finally said to her, you know, if we're a third, can we have another two syllables? <laughs> we want it yeah. to take a little bit longer for you to say our name. Yes, definitely. Um, if someone is really inspired by what you have been talking about today, is there a way to become involved with the Compass Rose Society? Is there a, is there a better way to support it here? What a great question. The Diocese of Rhode Island is a new member of the Compass Rose Society, and um, the Compass Rose Society is active all over the globe. It has been active in Africa and then is very active in another place of my heart, Jerusalem, Mm -hmm. where it has assisted the Princess Basma Center of Jerusalem, which is a reconciliation ministry that assists um, primarily Arab Christians and Arab Muslims in Jerusalem with children who have special needs and an integrated education for them. The children come in from the West Bank and other areas to receive treatment with their mothers and sometimes younger siblings during the week and return home with their mothers on the weekends. The mothers are taught not only the therapy skills about helping them to with their whether it's a hearing or processing or a physical difference to help them with those, but also about integrating the child and their family into their community. It's an amazing reconciliation mission. And that is amazing Compass Rose work. Mm -hmm. That's something we take very seriously. So what I was about to say about getting involved is, is that the Diocese of Rhode Island is a new member I am a personal member. Um, We either, I'm sure there would be spaces to go. It's not easy to go to the meetings and it's not inexpensive, but you can participate in the work of the Compass Rose through either the diocese or through individual members you may know. Um, But that's, that's how to get involved and to also look at our publications and see what's going on out there in the communion. That's amazing. I feel like I had a completely wrong idea of what the Anglican Communion was. Nothing wrong. Nothing (laughs) wrong. It's our opportunity for dialogue. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu used to say, in addition to we're Anglicans because we meet, he used to talk about Ubuntu and the idea, the African word Ubuntu, Mm -hmm. that I'm me because you're you. I become a person through our interaction. We become who we are in our dialogue with others. And so that would be the biggest 
reason I would give you about why the Anglican communion is important, is significant to us. We become who we are through that. Wow. Um, as we sort of wrap up, is there any big thing that I've missed that you're like, we can't do anything about the Anglican communion without mentioning this? <laughs> uh, Ubuntu. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much. If we wanted to see you on a Sunday morning, where would that be? You would find me at Emanuel Church at 42 Dearborn Street in Newport. And our website is emmanuelnewport.org. And we currently post sermons. And as we progress in our current uh, global concerns about pandemic, we may be posting more worship than just <laughs> sermons, but yeah. you're always welcome personally or virtually. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being a part of Thank you for inviting me, Ivy. Thank you for listening to Tea Time Theology. We would like to thank our sponsor, the Episcopal Diocese of Rhode Island, and the Right Reverend Nicholas Nisley, as well as our guests today. You can follow us at Tea Time Theology on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. This season of Tea Time Theology is hosted and organized by Ivy Swinsky. Our music is mixed and performed by Mo Ray Akande. The podcast is recorded and edited by me, Taylor Wilkie. Thou didst die.